Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariyah on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Earlier today I was thinking that we've been doing this text for a long time. It would be nice to read another subject. But the truth is that as I was reflecting on this, it occurred to me that we are reading about the methodology of education of the Prophet And if there's anything that's relevant in our lives, if there's anything about what we're going to do, if there's any legacy that's awaiting us ahead, we will need to understand this first. There's no way for us to have a meaningful, positive influence in any capacity until we can understand this. And therefore, it makes so much sense why Shaykh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghadda narrates so many riwayat in examples of how the Prophet was such a positive influence on those around So with that, we continue today starting from the 8th chapter Ta'alimuhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bin Muqayya Sati wa Tarthi Bismillah Bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah qalam wa alhamdulillah Analogy and comparison Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to explain and compare various injunctions for the benefit of his sahaba if procedures were confusing to them or rules were difficult to comprehend by using analogies and comparisons, confusing and dis- difficult matters would become clear to them. They would, learn, they would thus learn the procedures and objectives of the Sharia and also understand its far-reaching aims. A proper placed analogy will stick with the student for the rest of their life. You just have to place it right. A good analogy. One time I was uh, driving with my children. This is when my oldest son was much younger. And uh, he said to me, Abba, I'd like to meet Allah. So I, I kind of freaked out. Like, Are you serious? But all these years I had been talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you know, honoring Allah, worshiping Allah. He said that I want to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then my wife was sitting there next to me. We were driving the car. So I said to her, I'll take care of it for you. So she looked at me with this really weird look, like, are you crazy? What kind of random statement is that? 
I started thinking, what's the solution to this? What's the solution to this? And every argument that I thought of that I could present to him that would be easy to explain, I realized would only leave shuck in his heart because he wasn't at a point in his life where intellectual arguments would actually solve any problem. He was too young for that. So it became apparent to me that his answer actually lied in an analogy. Now I had to find it. The issue was too complicated to explain in words, as he was too young. But it could be answered through an analogy, a well-placed analogy. So I waited for my moment. Later on, one of the evenings, we had gone to visit my aunt. And when we left her home, her apartment, and we're walking to the car, it was late at night, it was Chicago, very windy. So the wind blew his hat off of his head. So he leaned forward to pick it up, and I, in a um, not so serious yet firm way, said to him, Birta, why did you take your hat off? You know, holding him accountable. Not that it was a big deal, but I just wanted to, I was making a point. So I said, Birta, why did you take your hat off? He said, Abba, I didn't take it off, the wind did. So then I said to him, show me the wind right now. Otherwise, you're in trouble for it. He said, Abba, I can't show you the wind, but I promise it was the wind. And that was my moment there where I said, Birta, this is the reality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The presence of Allah and his doings and his strength, his tadbir cannot be seen, yet it is felt. And just as anyone denying the wind would be a fool, anyone denying the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would also be a fool. And this is why the method that Qur'an uses to introduce us to Allah is reflection-based. That after seeing all this, do you still have any doubt? Are you crazy? Are you dumb? Like this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. Yet there are people who unfortunately don't see it. So a well-placed analogy. You place the analogy right, the masala is now locked in place. Go ahead. Bukhari narrates on the authority of Ibn Abbas who said, A woman from the Juhayna tribe came to Rasulullah and said, My mother had taken a vow to perform Hajj. She did not perform Hajj and has now passed away. Can I perform Hajj on her behalf? Rasulullah replied, Yes. You may perform Hajj on her behalf. Tell me, had there been any debt on your mother's shoulders, would you have fulfilled it on her behalf? She said, yes. Rasulullah said, fulfill all that is due, uh, fulfill all that is due to Allah, for he is more deserving of faithfulness. Yeah. So here she asked Rasulullah in the Ummi Nadarat and Tahajjah. My mother made a took a vow to perform Hajj. She passed away before performance. So what's the answer here? This is a good question. If a person makes intention to do something, necessitates something upon their self, and they don't fulfill it, is there qaba or not? So Rasulullah explains this masala through qiyas, through analogy. And the qiyas that he presents here is that that if your mother owed someone a debt, 
The question was about Hukukullah. For the Qiyas, Rasulullah transitioned over to Hukuk al-Ibad because more relatable, easier. People interact with one another, so there is precedent there. If you borrowed money from someone, if your mother had borrowed money from someone and passed away, would you not pay her debt? So then she said, yes. So Rasulullah says that uh, in one riwayah, That's one riwayah. Just as you would fulfill that debt, fulfill this debt too. Yes. Muslim narrates on the authority of Abu Dhabi al-Rifari who said, some of the Sahaba of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Now by the way, this masala that she asked about, anha, in the uh, books of fiqh, we refer to it as the masala of hajj al-badr. What do we call this? That you take someone else's place when you perform hajj. Now the masail of hajj al-badr are um, they're detailed. Let's, let's put it that way. There are a lot of conditions that must be met. And just because someone made intention of performing hajj, the children don't naturally inherit the responsibility. So for example, the parent said that I will perform hajj. Now the child isn't obligated to perform that hajj. Just as in the debt, the analogy Nabi Wasallam gave was phenomenal. If a person borrowed money and they died, their child isn't legally responsible of paying the debt. You don't inherit debts in Islam. What would happen, and on both sides they're willing is the same, if a person passes away and they owe money to someone, what you would do before you distribute the wealth is you would take that person's debt first and pay them back. You guys understand? You would take that person's debt first and then pay that person back. And after you've paid them back, the wiratha will occur, the inheritance will be distributed. And now let's say, for example, there is uh, there is a, a scenario where there was no wealth, the person left no money behind. So you can't take any wealth out from that person's money, they left nothing behind. There was no inheritance. The children will not be obligated to pay anything on behalf of their parent. You can't force them to take money out of your own money and give it, because debts are not inherited. However, even though they aren't obligated to do that, it is still recommended shara'an legally for them to do exactly that. To not leave a person whose debt is unpaid. Because it sets a very bad precedent. The precedent is borrow a lot of money before you die, die, no one has to pay it. And with, within half a generation, people will stop trusting one another. And if human beings stop trusting one another and stop lending money to one another, institutions will come in and pick up on those vulnerable people and squeeze the last bit of juice out of them and they will have a lot of problems. So the, the situation that we find ourselves in today, um, financially and economically, specifically with the um, abundance of riba interest, is no coincidence. It's not a coincidence. This is very carefully thought out. Human beings are separated and divided. Neighbors don't know one another. Cousins barely know one another. People are pushed into an individualist society where the whole goal is achieve your own goal and become successful yourself, build your own brand. So now when you are in need, it's very difficult to find people to help you. Most people uh, are required to turn to institutions. So if you're traveling somewhere and you don't have a friend or another Muslim that will support you, 
for a life rather than you have to go to the hotels and you have to go to the restaurants because human beings are no longer there for one another. So when you separate human beings and remove that bond of insaniyat, of humanity from them, it's a great opportunity for corporations to come in and make their buck. Uh, and so here, the Prophet he told the companions that if a person passes away and leaves a debt, cover it. In one riwayah, the Prophet of Allah said, I will cover their debt. And he said, I am most deserving. I, am mo I carry the right that if anyone dies and they have any debt, come to me, Muhammad I will give it. Because if those debts are not paid back, people will stop trusting. And if they stop trusting, they'll stop lending. That will lead to a very dark page in history. We are living in it today, right now. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. Yes, go ahead. <coughs> Muslim narrates on the authority of Abu Dhabi Ghifari who said, some of the Sahaba. By the way, so let's finish the analogy. Now let's go to Hajj, the Masala. When a person passes away, if they have a Hajj that's outstanding, you will not deduct the wealth required to perform that Hajj just as you would with the debt. You won't do that. You guys hear me? In Hukuk al Ibad, in the rights of human beings, you deduct that wealth right off the bat. Because someone is living, their debt must be paid. Their right must be fulfilled. In Hukukullah, you won't deduct that money right away. Rather, you will only take that money out before you go into full-blown inheritance, before you distribute the wealth. If that person left a wasiyah, if they requested it. And even if they requested it, as you all know, for those of you that have studied it, that when you bequest something, the maximum you can bequest is sort of What's the maximum you can bequest? One third. So for example, a person left behind $100, or let's say $99. One third that they are allowed to bequest it, that they have permission to bequest it is how many dollars? 33. Now if this person left without doing Hajj, and the Hajj required $100, it won't be done. So similarly, if they had zakat that was backdated and unpaid, it has to be specified from that one third. That from this one third, you will give any qada that's required, or any fidya required from their son, make up their zakat, perform their hajj. It all happened from that wasiyah, from that one third. And if they didn't do wasiyah, then nothing. Now, on their behalf, if you'd like, out of your own, your wealth, you can. Otherwise, you make a stifar and zoba, and their matter will be settled on the day of judgment. Go ahead. Muslim narrates on the authority of who said, some of the Sahaba of Rasulullah said to him, O Rasulullah, the wealthy have taken all the rewards with them. They pray as we pray, they fast as we fast, and they give in charity from their extra wealth, while we cannot give because we are poor. Rasulullah replied, Allah, Has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not provided other ways through which you could give in charity? For every glorification of Allah, meaning saying subhanAllah, is, is the reward of charity. For every Exaltation of Allah by saying Allahu Akbar is the reward of charity. For every praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying Alhamdulillah is the reward of charity. For every tahleed saying La ilaha illallah is the reward of charity. Commanding good is an act of charity. Prohibiting evil is an act of charity. A man engaging in intercourse with his lawful life or lawful wife is an act of charity. Now this is the part. A 
person being intimate with their own spouse, there's charity there. So one companion, he said, uh, Ya Rasulullah, That person fulfills his desire and he receives reward for that? How does that make any sense? Because being intimate is not a religious act, it's a natural occurrence. It's something that someone does out of their insaniyat. It doesn't have anything to do with ibadah or the, or the deen. So to answer that, Rasulullah then places iqiyas, presents, presents logic, analogy behind it. That if he had engaged in haram, would there not have been a sin there? Yes. That similarly, because he did not do that haram, and he chose the halal. Let's see, this reward is there if the intention was there. That's the thing. If there was an intention there, when a person eats haram, sorry, eats halal, and if their intention is in that moment that I am eating halal, even though I am tempted to eat haram, in this moment, for whatever reason, I am tempted to eat or drink haram, but I'm not going to do that, I'm going to eat halal, will they get reward for eating the halal? Yeah. A person dresses modestly, a sister wears a hijab, a brother covers himself, and they, at the time, when they're putting that garment on, they're thinking, man, I would love to dress like so-and-so person, but I'm going to do this out of my ita'ah and obedience to Allah. Will there be reward for that person? A person leads a job that, you know, that, that was doubtful and had haram in it, and they take a lower-paying job knowing that it's halal and it's pure. Will there be reward for them? Yes, in all of these cases. Because their decision was based on pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How could there not be reward? Yes, go ahead. Rasulullah made an irrational analogy between the two aspect, aspects so, so that the matter could become clear to them. This enabled them to understand an issue which did not cross their minds previously. A person is rewarded for, for this lawful pleasure uh, because of its beneficial consequences. Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, Nasa'i, and Ibn Majah narrate on the authority of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas who said, I heard Rasulullah I heard Rasulullah being asked about the injunction regarding the sale of dry dates in exchange for fresh dates. So he asked those who were around him, do fresh dates become less in weight when they get dry? They replied, they replied yes. So he prohibited them from doing so. Yes. Because there's one jint against this is the more of a fiqh issue. This is regarding the issue of riba. This is regarding the issue of riba. That if you have two commodities on if you have the same commodity on two ends of the transaction, can you have um, fadl? Can you have one side with more of a quantity than the other side? So that's not jayas in Islam. So here the companion asks, what about the, uh, the date that one date's dry, one date's still moist? Meaning it's still a date, but it's at two different points of its journey. So for that, Rasulullah also said no, because the jins is one. It's of one type, it's of one origin. Yes, go ahead. There is no doubt that Rasulullah knew full well that fresh dates weigh less than weigh less after they dry because he lived in the Arabian Peninsula, a land of dry and fresh dates. This is something that is known to even the most ignorant of people there. However, Rasulullah posed this question to draw the attention of his Sahaba, those who were listening to him and those who would follow him that the reason for the prohibition of selling dry dates in exchange for fresh dates is the fact that they weigh less when they dry. Therefore, the one cannot be sold in exchange for the other, though the, 
though, though equally in weight. He thus brought to their attention the underlying reason for this injunction, which was concealed to them. Consequently, this became a basic principle and injunction for all future transactions. Yes. Similists and examples. Rasulullah would often give examples in order to explain the content of his message. All the above um, narrations we covered were about Qiyas. How Rasulullah conveyed a point through presenting a similar analogy. Now, from here, these next chapters are not, these next duayat are not about an analogy directly, rather, they're about giving examples. And that's what I was saying earlier that a proper analogy, a proper example, the two are different, by the way, um, can convey a point clearly in a way that a person will remember it for the rest of their life. You just have to place it and plant it right. Go ahead. The examples which he gave were such that people could see them with their own eyes, taste them with their tongues, perceive them with their senses, and they were within easy reach. This That's interesting too, that the, that the example that you give should be relevant to the person that you're talking to. So they understand it, they experience it. They know what they're talking about. That this, like, you know, a child, there's a different analogy you'll give to a child from an adult. Two different analogies, two different people. <laughs> this method makes it easier for a student to understand, and there is a complete and ready acceptance of the subject that is being taught or cautioned against. Yeah, so when they teach math to kids, what do they say? Jack bought two apples. Kids are familiar with apples. You're teaching it to aunties, you say, Razia purchased two rotis <laughs> in return of three nuns. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> Scholars of rhetoric emphasize that examples and parables play a major role in exposing hidden meanings and raising delicate veils. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala presented numerous examples and parables in his great book, the Quran. And Rasulullah also followed the method of the Quran. He presented numerous examples and parables in his sermon, speeches and words of admonition. There are numerous hadith in this regard. We will quote a few examples. Abu Dawood narrates on the authority of Anas who said, Rasulullah said, The similitude of a believer who recites the Quran is like the citron. Uh, its, fragrance, its fragrance is beautiful and its taste is good. The similitude of a believer who does not recite the Quran is like the date. It tastes good but has no fragrance. The similitude of a sinner who recites the Quran is like the basil. It has a beautiful fragrance, but tastes bitter. The similitude of the Rehan. Rehan is that game? What do you guys say? Like a flower. But Rehan is what is? Like a, like a beautiful flower that has a gorgeous smell to it, but if you buy it into the flower, what happens? It doesn't taste good. This is the example of a Fajr who reads the Quran. This person's reading the Quran, they're doing the right thing, but if they were, if they allow the Quran to enter, and absorb into them, how much more beautiful would it be? They would then upgrade. Yes. The similitude of a sitter who does not recite the Quran is like a colosin, as known as the bitter apple. It tastes bitter and has no fragrance. Its taste is very bitter and it doesn't have any scent. It's a lose-lose. 
Go ahead. The similitude of a righteous companion is like a perfumer. If you do not get any perfume from him, you will get some fragrance by being with him. If you don't purchase perfume when you enter into a fragrance store, you always walk out smelling good. Everyone knows that, right? That's why when you walk out of the airport, you just make sure you walk through the duty-free. Even if you don't buy anything, just walk through there. Someone will probably spray something through their barakah, you'll get some spray on you. So this is Mathur Jaleesa Saleh. Yes. The similitude of an evil companion is like a person who tends to the bellows. Yeah. Someone, you know, you know the person who wore a blacksmith? He sits there and he uses bellow and he pushes air in there. He has a big fire, and in order for the fire to get hot, what does the fire need? It's air, right? So he's pushing for the bellow, pushing and pushing and pushing. Like he's trying to get the air to shoot into this fire. So as the air shoots in, what happens in return? The ash of smoke comes out at him. So at the end of his shift, how does he smell? Horrible. Smell really, like, he's got a strong soup smell. Similarly, if you came in there into the store to make a payment or just to you know, take a seat if there was a bench there, and everyone knows this. If you've been to a barbecue, you hang around too close to the grill, what happens? You don't smell good anymore. You know, people say, hey, we're going to do s'mores. You want to come? I'd like to have a s'more. I'd be really happy if you made me a s'more. I can't make the s'more myself because of that smell factor. Yes. So Rasulullah is telling us that exact point through an analogy. No, sorry, through an example. This is the example here. Yes, go If some of his soup does not get onto you, his smoke will get onto you. The purpose of presenting this example is to demonstrate the high rank of a believer and the loftiness of his deeds, and to expose the despicable level of a sinner and the baseness of his deeds. Ibn Qayyim said Rasulullah divided people into four categories. Those who are believers and who recite the Quran, they are the best of people. Those who are believers but do not recite the Quran, they are lower in rank than the first category. However, both categories are fortunate because they are both believers. Those who have been given the Quran but have no Iman, they are the hypocrites. Those who have neither the Quran or Iman, the latter two categories are the wretched ones. Iman and the Quran are both sources of light which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places in the heart of whom he wills. Both of these are the basis of every good in this world and in the hereafter. And knowledge of both is the best and most virtuous of knowledge. In fact, there is no knowledge that can really benefit a person besides the knowledge of the knowledge of these, meaning Iman and This prophetic parable contains a profound incentive to do good and, and a forbidding warning to abstain from evil. This has been expressed in a manner to facilitate easy assimilation by the audience. It also instructs one to choose the companionship of the righteous and the ulama and to frequent their gatherings because it is, a, it is a benefit in this world and the hereafter. It also warns against the company of, of the evil ones and the flagrant sinners. Bukhari Muslim Neri on the authority of Abu Musa al-Ashari who said, Rasulullah said, the similitude of the guidance and knowledge which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent me with is like that of abundant rain which falls on the land. See, we talked about Qiyas earlier analogies. In the Qiyas, if you're wondering, what's the difference between the Qiyas and Madhan? Anyone wondering that? There's a big difference. In a Qiyas, in an analogy, you have a scenario 
the legal ruling for which is established. So in a qiyas, what you're doing is that you're recreating a similar scenario and, and building a bridge between the two so you can export the ruling from this issue to here. Does that make sense? That's what you're doing. So in, in Rasulullah as an example, he said that if someone owed a debt, would they not pay it? Answer is yes. So now you have an issue with an established ruling. We know that's true. Everyone accepts that. So now the analogy is, if that applies to Hukuk al-Ibad, it applies to Hukuk Allah. You try to establish that these two scenarios are similar, and if the ruling is uh, like this here, it'll also be, that same ruling will apply here. You guys understand analogy? Okay. Hukum is involved. In an analogy, what's involved? Hukum, there's a ruling. In a mathal or mithad, no hukum is involved. It's a reflection, right? That someone will say that the smell of this room is like the smell of the first rain of the season. There's no hukum there. It's just a mitad. That this thing looks like this. It smells like this. It tastes like this. So that's that's, that's the difference here. So Rasulullah is giving a mitad here. Go ahead. A portion of which was good and pure. It absorbed the water and thereby caused abundant trees and lush vegetation to grow. Another portion was barren. It held the water and so Allah Ta'ala enabled people to benefit from it. They drank, irrigated their lands and harvested. The rain fell on another portion of land which was plain and level. This land neither holds any water nor does it allow any vegetation to grow. That is the similitude of the one who has an understanding of the religion of Allah Ta'ala and benefits from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent me with. He acquires knowledge and conveys it to others. And the other is the similitude of the one who does not pay any heed to it and does not accept the guidance of Allah ta'ala with which I have been sent. You'll see in the Quran, in the Hadith, while giving mithal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala very frequently uses the example of rain and land. Nabi sallallahu talks about different types of land. The Quran talks about what is that? Sayyid. Yeah, what's it about? That Wabil. Fatarakahu Salda. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about heavy rain that comes down and leaves a place in bare, leaves a place barren. And then there's another rain that comes down that leaves vegetation behind. These examples are, are abundant. The rain, the land. One of the reasons for this is because this example is universal. Wherever you live, there is an appreciation for rain. Even if you're not in agriculture itself, people notice, oh, it's raining, my grass is growing. This is the mithad of that land that Rasulullah was talking about, that it absorbs what it's given and also puts, gives output as well. That's that first analogy, that's the first group of people. So like this, Rasulullah built a whole uh, framework out of this that people are of different categories too. Yes. Urtubi and others mentioned Rasulullah presents the similitude of the religion with which he was sent, with that of rain which comes to the people at a time when they are in need of it. This was the condition of the people before the commissioning of Rasulullah as a messenger. Just as rain gives life to a dead land, the teachings of Islam give life to a dead heart. He then compared those who heard him to various portions of, of a land on which rain falls. Anyone that's in agriculture knows that without rain, what happens? 
Well, no. Nothing grows. What if you just sit there and keep toiling with the earth and burying it and you know, maybe putting fragrance on? They're doing your best. But if rain doesn't come, what'll happen? That land won't grow anything. Whatever's in there is going to die. So such is the example of wahi. And until wahi doesn't make it to your heart, you're dead. The way you revive your heart, the way that you bring life to that heart, is through wahi. Now you look back at your communities and your families and people that you know from across the world. And the truth is most of the ummah is in a spiritual coma. Most of the ummah is in a coma. They're barely alive. Barely alive. Shaykh al-Hindr, when he was released from Malta, he gave his iconic speech. This is during the British occupation and colonial rule of India. So when he was released, he gave a speech and he said that, I asked myself, why is it the Muslim Ummah is as broken as it is? Why are we so broken? The Ottoman Empire was falling apart. You know, Muslims were divided, turned against one another. The Middle East that was once a beacon of unity was now broken into these new lines and new territories that were all drawn out by British colonialists, European colonialists, let's say that. They just came and drew a bunch of lines and that was the new border. The unity of Islam no longer was enough to hold people together. So he said, I was in prison because he was imprisoned by the, the British. And while I was in prison, I kept asking myself this question. Why is it that the Ummah is where it is? And he then, in that iconic historical speech, said two things that have gone into my heart. Number one, we are divided. Only if we could be united again. And number two, we are no longer connected to the Quran. The truth is that the Qur'an is what unites us all. The hadith of the Prophet is what unites us all. And when the Qur'an enters into our lives, a person can follow any mother they want, any tariqah they want, any aqidah they want. But when they hear the Imam of Haram saying, غَيْرِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ الضَّالِينَ What does the Ummah say? The Qur'an unites us all. Everyone knows. That after the Imam says, غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين قولوا آمين. That's the riwayah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So here the example of, uh, of, of, of wahi to the heart is like water to the earth, water to the ground. Yes, go ahead. One drop, you know. After two, three months of no rain, Dallas folks, you all know what I'm talking about. Two, three months of no rain. One rain and what happens? Everyone goes wild. Wah! I was once in Hajj, at a, and there was a drought in Mecca, in, in that whole Jeddah, Mecca area, that Sahili area, for uh, some period. And the first rain came at Hajj. The Imam, uh, Sheikh Shurayn, he led the Jummah khutbah, and in the khutbah, he said, Allahumma aghithna. It was rain. And it was right after Hajj, maybe like four or five million people. Everyone together said, Ameen! Chill on my spine, my wall. Then he said, Allahumma khithna. Everyone, the whole huddle. Hanafi said it quietly. <laughs> but everyone else said it out loud. Allahumma khithna. Ameen. Ameen. 
When I'm in Agai, Allah is my witness. I can remember this day. I was there myself. We finished Juma, went back to the hotel. Asr Salah was maybe an hour and a half, two hours later. When we were walking towards Asr, the rain started. It hadn't rained in months. And as it started, people were crying in joy. They were crying. And uh, there were people that were taking their shirts off. Instead of joy, they were so excited, you know, that the, it's here, it's here. This is what happened to the Sahaba when the Prophet entered into their lives. It's here, it's here. The drought will now come to an end. This is what happened to people when ulama entered into their lives, that it's here, it's here. The drought will not come to an end. I've been in a dry state for 15, 20 years of my life. Finally, the end is here. Why is here? And the person that's at the center of that rain, they just have their eyes closed with their face pointing up and the shower is pouring down like a thought of them sitting in a classroom, just enjoying the rain, thinking that it'll never end. But what happens, folks? It always ends. You think Allah dry up a little bit and jump back into the rain again. Rasulullah gives the example of revelation with this water. Okay. This is what the example is. Go ahead. Now, the earth people, the rain was revelation. The earth in this example is what? Huh? People, the insan. Now, earth is a, water is one type. Water is it's basically one type. There's, there's good and bad water. It's, either it's acidic or it's good, right? So you have bad ilm and good ilm. So wahi is the good ilm. You have that. Earth, however, the land, the soil that it falls on, different types. You have, uh, what is this? There is one land that as soon as the water falls, what happens? It absorbs the water and pushes out this lush green grass. That's one type of person. Ajadib is what? Like a flat land. So there is a flat land. But when I say flat, I mean it doesn't absorb in. But there is a little bit of a... Actually, should I tell you what an ajadib is? Ajadib is a land. It's, it's basically a... Think of it as a dry riverbed. That's ajadib. What is ajadib, folks? Because what happens is, because it's a riverbed, it's shaped in the right way. When it rains, what happens? The water gathers there. The water, the water collects there. So it didn't absorb itself. However, other people can come and drink from there. They can bathe from there. So this is what ajadib is. Yeah. Ajadib jamru ajdam wal ajadibu silabu al-ardi allati tumsakul ma wala tashrubuhu sariha. The water doesn't absorb quickly into it. It slowly makes its way into the Land. So, okay, you can read that. 
Among them is a person who has knowledge, practices on it, and conveys it to others. He is like a good piece of land which absorbs water, benefits itself, causes vegetation to grow, and thus benefits others from it. Then there is a person who has acquired knowledge appropriate to his time, but does not act on its optional aspects, or does not fully comprehend what he has acquired. However, he conveys it to others. He is like a land in which water remains, and people are able to benefit from it. This is the person who is referred to in the following statement of Rasulullah May Allah make that person flourish who hears my speech and memorizes it, and then conveys it as he has heard it. Many a person who has acquired knowledge is not fully knowledgeable himself, and many a person who has acquired knowledge may very likely convey it to someone who is more knowledgeable than themselves. We read this two days ago in Mishkat. So he actually started that second word. That the person who carries fiqh sometimes isn't a jurist himself. You learn the masla, but you don't have the intellectual capacity to fully process it. That happens, right? A square, B square equals C square. Everyone knows that. What does that mean, though? What are the implications of this Pythagoras? That a square plus b square equals to c square. We know that, but what does it mean? For a person who's not a faqih, they wouldn't know. But a person who is a faqih in math, they would be able to now tell you what are the deductions of this formula. So, Sometimes a person is carrying it. They don't fully absorb it or understand it. They don't have that capacity. But they pass on that message word by word to someone else. And now it reaches a person who truly does appreciate and understand it. Yes. Then there is a person who listens to knowledge being imparted, but neither memorizes it nor practices on it, and fails to convey it to others. Such a person is like a level or marshy land, which does not absorb water and causes destruction to other lands. In this similitude, Rasulullah mentioned the first two praiseworthy, praiseworthy categories together because from them benefit is derived. On the other hand, he mentioned the third blameworthy, third blameworthy care category on its own because it has no benefit. Allah Ta'ala knows best. The first category of people are those who narrate a hadith, have intelligence, and by the next generation. Bukhari and Tirmidhi narrate on the authority of Al-Nu'ayn ibn Bashir radiallahu anhu who said Rasulullah said the similitude of the one who remains steadfast on the limits set by Allah uh, the one who transgresses them and the one who falls short in fulfilling them is like that of a group of people who were passengers on a ship. Some of them were on the lower deck and others on the upper deck. Those who were on the lower deck had to pass by those who were on the upper deck in order to, to obtain water. Those who were on the upper deck became annoyed by this. One of those from the lower deck therefore took an axe and began making a hole in the lower deck. Those who were on the upper deck came to him and asked him, What is wrong with you? What are you doing? He replied, You became annoyed at me, and if I need water, and, and I need water. If they stop him from making a hole in the ship, they will save him and, and themselves as well. But if they leave him to make a hole in the ship, they will destroy him and themselves as well. Yeah, and they have to stand up, they have to work together. If they just let it be, if this guy, if they let this guy find his own path, his own path, what he views to be the shortest path to the goal, 
for him, that's water, right? There's one person, he, he, I'll give him a thought of the mitah, right? That, you know, a um, person sees another guy, he says, hey, how do you make money? He said, well, I went through med school and I have this many years of studying, so my, um, I studied for nine years and now I make 200K. That guy's man, I gotta make 200K, but I don't wanna do nine years. So the quickest way there, like this guy, instead of going up and giving the water, he said, how am I gonna get water? Let me just make a hole in the ship. So this guy's like, you know what? How about I just sell drugs? If I sell drugs, I'll make the 200K. Now, if people allow him to sell drugs, what's gonna happen? It'll ruin the whole community. If they let this guy continue uh, with his hole, what's gonna happen? The whole ship. I was speaking to a, a brother in our community. When I say our community, I mean Dallas community. Um, the other day. And uh, unfortunately, he's a really good brother. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him tawfiq and hidayah. But, you know, young people, they get so caught with money. They don't know how to satisfy that desire for money, that greed and hunger for money. So this particular person, unfortunately, is very heavily involved in selling things that he shouldn't be selling. So I spoke to him over the phone. I met him multiple times. Recently, I called him again. I said, Baba, stop this. You're hurting people. You know, we all know that these, that once people get addicted to these substances, they commit suicide, they hurt themselves, they get harmed. You know, and then I told him, I need you to know that there are mothers of the ummah that are actively praying for your destruction in the dunya and the akhirah. I know these mothers. They're making dua against you. They're rooting against you. There's a whole ummah of mothers out there. And, you know, he's the Hajjul Guzar Admi. This guy, regular, prays the Hajjul every day, by the way. Prays the Hajjul every day, never misses a salah. And I said to him that, you know, um, you have such concern for being obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But yet, you're doing things like this. Does it not bother you? And I also said to him, what are you going to do with all this money? You're making like, at, at some point, some, some folks, they make like $10,000 a day. What are you going to do with $10,000 a day? How many steaks are you going to eat? How many coats are you going to buy? How many cars are you going to buy? <coughs> and my statement, by the way, there's, a, there's, a, there's another level to that statement. Because I said to that person, first of all, what you're doing is haram. You should have taqwa of Allah. But let's run the scenario that you don't care about all of that. That money is not usable. If you guys understand what I mean by that. So what are you going to do with all this money? You can't use that money. It's cash. You have $10,000 coming in cash. What are you going to do with that money? You're destroying your akhirah for a greed that can't be satisfied because of all this mess that you're doing. So here Rasulullah is teaching us that we have to stop these people and tell them, talk to them. And we're needed, you know, as we learn in the Quran, Yes, go ahead. Those who attempted to make a hole in the ship are like those who transgress the limits set by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. People then, who sell drugs are the worst. And I'm saying this not to pass judgment on anyone. That's for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it's a reminder for us all. One thing is a person does something that harms himself. 
it's a bad thing, make tawbah to Allah, ask Allah for forgiveness. But then there is that person who is harming society and humanity at large. That's a different thing. The sin there is much severe. It's a very serious matter. Okay, go ahead, let's finish this chapter off. Those who stop them are like are likened to those who are steadfast in observing the limits set by Allah. Those who remain silent are the ones who fall short of fulfilling the limits set by Allah. The essence of the hadith is that salvation can be attained by those who uphold the limits and those, those who they are upheld for. Otherwise, both will be destroyed. The sinner because of his sin and the one who remains silent because he was pleased with the sin being committed. The hadith shows that punishment is applicable when commanding of good is abandoned. It also teaches that a learned person may explain by using examples. We also learn that it is, that it is incumbent, incumbent to, to exercise patience over the taunts of one's neighbor if one fears that he will fall into something more destructive and harmful. Ibn Umar relates that, relates that Rasulullah said, a hypocrite is like a wavering sheep between two flocks. It wavers between this flock at times and between that flock at other times, not knowing which of the two it should follow. With that, we'll conclude here. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us tawfiq. In our next uh, class, we'll move on to the next chapter, chapter 10. May Allah grant us barakah, protect us from the evil that shaitan has laid before humanity. He protects our children, our progenies, our communities, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, Grant us to follow the example of Rasulullah.